Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, presented by the tech doctor, Ronan Leonard. Hi, welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast. I'm here in the Bank of Ireland workbench branch in, in uh, Ranklaw Square with Alan Meany and Jasanio Fundrix. Morning, guys. Morning. Hey, Ronan. Tell us a bit about the background of your company and recently did you, you won an award at FinTech in Luxembourg. Sure, so we're... Uh fund reconciliation software company so we develop reconciliation software for fund administrators probably most people in Dublin will have a cousin an aunt a college mate uh, that's working in fund admin it's a pretty big industry here there's over 15,000 people employed and uh, yeah we were we were kind of humbled to win an award at a ICT spring conference in Luxembourg last month um, European startup of the year which was fantastic um, there was only four awards number 26 were, were one of the other ones the big online bank and um, yeah, it was great. And what is and uh, how has it helped you going forward that the award? So I mean, directly after uh, we'd inbound interest from potential clients in Luxembourg, which was fantastic. So the gala award dinner, there was over six hundred people. A good portion of that would be our target market. So it was fantastic to get a platform in front of them. And yeah, it's led to direct um, contact from from potential clients. So. How long have you guys been in business? So we first started Fundrex at the end of 2013. It was a cliche startup pivot. So yeah. myself, Des and Porik had been working on an idea for a collaboration software, kind of like a bad version of Trello, I guess you could call it, mm-hmm. or Trello, but not as good. Um, and this was before Slack. So we were doing that, and a friend of a friend approached us about building a new administrator, uh, uh, building a new rec system for a fund administrator. And we, our own background is in fund administration. Between myself and Des, I guess we've over 30 years experience. And it was a problem we knew really well and thought that we could do a pretty good job solving it. So that's how we got started. It wasn't a case of us coming up with the idea. It was more of, hey, why don't you come solve this problem for us? And that was that was the genesis of Funder Access Factory at the end of 2013. And how big have you grown since then? So the first, it, we've kind of built the business brick by brick. So the first year, 2014, there was just me and Porik full-time on the business. Yeah. So that was Porik, our CTO, building the product and me pitching clients. So we sell to large enterprise uh, customers who would have, you know, a local presence of an international firm here, so like Mitsubishi and Capital Asset Services. So the sales cycle is quite long. So we, we've spent 2014 and parts of 2015 doing a lot of the groundwork of getting relationships with those clients, building a, a proof of concept. Because I guess in our area, you know, a proof of concept can't be an MVP, a minimum viable product. It has to actually solve stuff and it has to hold up the security and due diligence. So it took a little bit longer. 2015, we hired two developers down in WIT in Arc Labs, where our research and development team are based, and signed up um, our second client and started 2016. Then it, things have kind of ramped up this year. Um, we have another two clients that are coming on board. We've almost doubled the team now with a new hire coming in um, next month once the visa is sorted to eight people. Mm-hmm. So it definitely feels like a scale-up year for us, but it's, it's really on the back of the hard work we've done the last few years. And where do you see this going in the next five years? So I don't want to hog, hog the microphone and let you answer a few questions. I think at the moment what we're trying to do is just to allow the product to mature a little bit. Um, and obviously our name is getting out there, as Alan mentioned, winning that award certainly really helps. So getting brand recognition is certainly one part of it, but we, we're trying to make sure that we can walk before we run because it is... I mean, reconciliation software should be very straightforward uh, in theory, but it, it, it isn't because of the number of different players involved, all the different formats, you have timing issues, all those kind of things. So, I mean, ideally, 
we bed down our initial clients and then we'll start doubling up on the clients hopefully over the over the coming year yeah and just to explain for listeners anyone that doesn't um, work in fund administration what it is we do we help our clients which are fund administrators automate how they reconcile data mm-hmm. so we take in one side from their internal systems we take in one side from the broker and custodians that look after the accounts that they service and we reconcile the two of them together so a lot of matching data a lot of cleaning up data and a lot of efficient workflow and automation and really the value prop- proposition for us is we help our clients free their staff up from data processing which is manually entering data and, and, and looking yeah. at it and uh, allow them to work on data analytics is where they add the value because in Ireland in particular we, we've quite a knowledgeable staff base in fund administration who are well experienced and can add higher value services What about clients abroad? How do you deal with them when considering the regulations will be different in Ireland? Yeah, so we are not a regulated entity so we provide our software as a service as is so yeah. our clients are regulated entities so obviously that feeds down to us in terms of um, the level of service we have to provide the security the due diligence um, but what we're seeing with our clients is we're getting the local presence signed up to a multinational company and then it's kind of spreading internally um, to their other offices across other locations so for example in Mitsubishi we would have first started servicing them here in Dublin they're now using it in Canada they're looking at it um, in Singapore as well so it's really a kind of a land and expand approach for us so far now with the Luxembourg award it might, we might be able to go directly to our international clients uh, luckily everything is kind of centralised in a manageable time zone but I think eventually we're going to probably get to a, a 24-7 support cycle and just something to add to that I suppose for anyone that is listening when they think about the financial services world they always think you know you know, large banks and uh, well funded and you know technology being strong but to be honest with you technology in the financial services sector is uh, is largely underserviced at the moment and there's there's some very, very large gaps out there for people to come up with a clever technology to, to fill those solutions or find solutions for uh, existing problems. And the other thing that I would say is with the advent of providers like Amazon Web Services, it makes it much easier for startups to get on, uh, off the ground because you don't have to pay for a very high server cost you know, to have local installs. So yeah, it's definitely the use of Amazon Web Services has been a godsend to the likes of uh, well, any startup like ourselves. Well, I know five years ago the, the, the prices were expensive, now the container prices are easier. Yeah, I think there's been something like 35 price decreases in the last five years from Amazon Web Services, yeah. which is which is obviously fantastic for us as a user. Yeah, so we, we've got more clients and they're using more services, but month to month our bill gets cheaper. Yeah. So obviously that's a plus. Um, and yeah, it's 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 what enables us to move so fast is the fact that we do have that there and we don't have to build it internally. So that doesn't become a massive time sink or, you know, mental sink for us to manage our infrastructure. You know, we have got experts there doing it. Well, the other thing Ronan touched on there, and he's right, is to do with regulation. And, and for a startup, when you're dealing with large banks, um, never even mind the regulation, but from a risk perspective, when they're dealing with a startup, they might be slightly reluctant. And having an Amazon Web Service host your data, uh, you know, certainly really, really helps with that yeah. side of things. Because you've got a big player, and rather than than the client having to host have their data hosted by a small startup it's hosted by uh, a recognized brand yeah and interestingly just to back up what des is saying the the fca so the financial conduct authority in in london the, the regulator there they're moving their, all their it infrastructure to aws so that's really i suppose 
given a signal to the market that if the regulator is willing to put their data into the cloud, into the Amazon, um, it really gives it the credibility then that we've been seeking to, to achieve. Because if you're using the same service, they are more or less can't do, do any harm. No, exactly. I mean, they, the regulator has, I suppose, appreciated this is going to be around for the long term, this is the way forward, um, and they've embraced it. And it makes it a little bit easier for us to pitch it then to our clients because we can refer back to them. And uh, client-wise, how many clients do you expect to have by the end of next year? So we've four at the moment, and by the end of this year, we'd hope to have ten. Yeah. Um, and then upwards of twenty anyway next year. Yeah. Yeah, that would certainly be a. Yeah, it's 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 a long sales cycle, relative. Um, so for us, from initial point of contact with a client to signing a contract, it's probably six six to eighteen months. Yeah. Um, and within that, then there's probably six to nine face-to-face meetings that you have to go through. So the various stages for us in our sales cycle is initial email or introduction through our network um, to get a face-to-face meeting. We'll sit down with someone, tell them, you know, our principles, how we work, how we see things going forward, and, and then we'll arrange a trial with our operations team, then we'll use their data, and then it's, you know, security due diligence, contract due diligence. It's, it's a long, long sales cycle. And you guys just make sure that you, you can handle the work, you're scalable to do the work. Yep, so luckily in Dublin there's no shortage of talent on the operations side. Um, I mean, all the big fund administrators are here. We've been lucky to get a very good head of ops. Um, but yeah, it's the tech side really is the challenge, is making sure that we have enough talent to handle, I suppose, the future roadmap and the stuff that we want to build, because we've got big plans. I guess every year when you bring it new rules and regulations for security and other things, we want to make sure you can cope with that and you're up to date and all that. No, oh, definitely. I mean, if you're going to be pushing the envelope forward, you have to have the resources to do it. Um, so far we've been lucky to get talented people which has allowed us to achieve an awful lot but very little and we just got to keep hiring really good people and how about funding is that easier to get so it's all relative Um, it's harder to get than London it's harder to get in Silicon Valley and it's harder to get at scale but I guess in Ireland you probably have it, find it easier to find the first couple hundred thousand yeah. because you've support like Enterprise Ireland You've got the accelerators, you've got angel investors. Um, it, it's trying to bridge that gap between I need 500,000 to I need 5 million to scale a business. And that's what we see. And we see it in the community here as well, an awful lot of feedback of people you know, finding it a little bit difficult to scale up and break out globally. Um, now, good businesses will still find funding, don't get me wrong. I mean, if you have a good business, and we see it an awful lot, especially in the last few years, companies like Box Ever and Intercom are getting larger and larger funding rounds. Yeah. Um, they just have to look outside Ireland for it. That's the, only, that's the only thing. But I guess you've got to make sure that when you get funding that the money's not been wasted as well. Oh, definitely. I mean, you're, you're selling a part of your business with the promise that you're going to return an even bigger business in three to five years' time. So, you know, you it's in your best interest to make a return on that that, that part of the business that you sold. Um, it's, it's the old adage of, you know, is it better to have a, a smaller piece of a bigger pie or a big piece of a smaller pie? And it's no good selling a piece of the pie if you don't make any bigger. Yeah, I think as well though you, you always need to maintain a startup mentality. So even if you're going five years, ten years, I think you can drop the startup label, but you should always have the startup mentality in your head. Be lean, you know, be clever with how you do things, and don't be wasteful. Yeah, be agile as well. Because I know that a lot of startups, once you get a certain, they keep that tag. My view is once you've got a certain level, you aren't a startup anymore. But keep thinking in that mode because if you're thinking in that mode, you're always going to be thinking, how do I save money? How do I get the next bit of funding? How do I get my own clients in? You think All, like that? Yeah, always. I mean, that's 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 your that's always your game plan is to, to make sure that your your income uh, exceeds your burn rate. Yeah, that's yeah. number one priority. 
Yeah, you see corporate accelerators um, and corporations in general paying to try and think like a startup. I mean, startups have it by default and they should hold on to it because it's valuable. Try not to lose that mentality because you'll find yourself in a few years' time paying a consultant to get it back. Yeah, and it's the same message you're trying to, I suppose, impart to uh, people that, you know, we're bringing on staff and making sure that your co-workers also have the same mentality as you have so that they understand, you know, these things don't happen overnight and you do need to be lean and you do need to adapt. Um, the other side of it that I think has been interesting for us is to, to make sure that all parts of the team understand that if a client kicks back on a new feature or says you know something isn't working the way they'd like it to work, you know, it's not a <clears throat> it's not a direct insult. It's just part of the experience. It's part of the journey. Yeah, and I guess for each client, you try to make sure that they get their own unique product version of your product, so it's built bespoke to to their needs, rather than standard product like Office, like Microsoft Office. We get that, and then everything you get in that is for all clients. Whereas you guys, more or each client has their own needs. What do you want? What do you not need? And we can tailor it towards you. Yeah, so we work on a modular basis. So we, we segment each core module um, separately. So a client can then pick and choose which models they want to operate with. And, and that's client-specific. It, it depends on their own business model. It depends on what systems they already have, what the processes are, what they're trying to achieve. But yeah, you're, you're still trying to make it be possible to scale and keep things generic so like 95% of the functionality works for everyone and um, the rabbit hole you can go down is ending up with you know four or five custom versions um, and four or five different development paths and you don't end up there so I guess you're like a car you can buy you buy the basic model and that, and you get, you get your add-ons exactly yeah, yeah. so you can't go wrong because with, with the car you got the you choose your ankle side and that's it and then the add-ons are there but yeah. Basically, the, the general general car works the way any car would do. Just add on, add on a bit more. Yeah, a bit like your modules. It, it's just traditional, traditional business values. You want to make every client feel like you're they're, they're your only client. Yeah. I mean, you got to make them feel special. Um, and I think that's something we've strived to do, and we've done a good job of with our initial clients. And what it's what it's meant for us is that we've got really really strong referrals. And because our business is um, enterprise level software as a service we eat the cost of acquiring all our clients up front. Yeah. So the only cost-effective way that we can do that is through referrals. So yeah. part of it is, um, you know, that's the way me and Des like to operate, and we like to work as a team. Even in our previous roles when we work together, it's all about the client. But we feel that value has a self-serving purpose and that it helps us help us achieve our uh, business goals with our business model. I think the other side of it, though, as well, is that when we've been in reconciliation work a long time, so when a client does come to us and say, well, we want to do it this way, we do, I won't use the word push back, but we certainly would try and give counter advice as well as yeah. to what we would see as being uh, best practice because you know, there's, there's many ways to skin a cat, so it, it, there definitely is a partnership feel to the way we work. Like yes, basically, if you've been doing this area for so many years, you actually know what's best. You can tell them yep. our experiences and previous previous uh, customers have had is is this, and you can I recommend you this. But if you don't do it your way, it can be done, but it might be the best use for you. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly that. So uh, you you do, and it's just the way that you try and communicate that from the start. That look, we are going to give advice as as we uh, as we com- complete the work. Um, yeah, it definitely is a two way street. Well, and yeah. the other side of that coin is some of our best ideas have come from our clients. Yeah, for so you, sure. You gotta yeah. balance, you know, knowing what's right with being open minded to new ideas. Because just uh, by dealing with our first few clients, I mean, some of our best features have been a direct result of them saying, "Well, have you thought about doing it this way?" Yeah. Mm. I mean, the other thing is why we're talking about partnerships. I mean, with Fundrex as well, we we also integrated some other very cool stuff that's out there in the market for anyone to use. Uh, 
we use products like Intercom. Uh, we use a product called Slack, which really helps get rid of emails. You know, so mm. there's some really, really good products that you can integrate into your own product to make your, your own product even better. Yeah. So, so don't, 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 I suppose the message is don't feel you need to do everything yourself. There's, there's mm-hmm. certain things you can, you can get help with. Yeah. I guess what also you got to look at as well is that when you're doing this kind of stuff, you got to basically, each, each client is basically equal to give equal time. And you don't practice one over the other because once, once you do that, you then lose what your focus is. Because if you're client-based and they're giving them a service and each client says you're giving them the time and respect that they're due, you're more likely to, to get referrals as well. Well, yeah, and, and I mean the other side of it. I mentioned one company there, Intercom, that we use, and that that just makes our response times very, very efficient. Because um, using Intercom, you can click on Fundrex, you can ask a question, it comes into the whole team uh, on mobile devices, on desktops, so you can just pick up that conversation and reply really, really quickly to let them know the client know you're on it and that, you, yeah. that you've gotten the message. Because that that product Intercom has grown big for the past couple of years, and it's a great product. It sure is. Yeah, absolutely. Same, yeah. same with Slack as well. Slack's very similar in what it does for. Uh, internally, it's a great product as well. Yeah, just just as Amazon has powered the infrastructure companies, like software has powered small teams as well. Yeah. Software solutions like those, they make us achieve far more with far less people. And I suppose what we almost get from clients is they get a bit shocked at first that we've been we've managed to respond this fast. What they're used to dealing with is vendors that they'll email a query to, and two weeks later they'll follow up again. Yeah. And with us, we have a medium response time of four minutes. So like it's kind of blows their mind a little bit mm, kind of freaks them out slightly that they think god is this an automated response or you know is there actually somebody at the end of this so yeah but as, as i mentioned uh, the, the likes of intercom and slack they just make life very very uh, efficient i would say i know that with slack for example if you're working turning your emails back and forth trying to track emails is, is, is not easy to do whereas with slack you, it's easy to find what you're looking for yeah it's just all like messaging systems and it's it's, it's absolutely perfect and i guess with that and also intercom because their costs are pretty reasonable you can enforce to save money in the long term and scale up as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know one company in Dublin that's not trying to decrease the amount of email traffic that they're using because it's just it's just so inefficient and all these you know CCs and BCCs uh, that inevitably happen, you just get inundated with information that you don't actually need. Yeah, the, the hack with Intercom and why it's really great value for us and hopefully no one from Intercom is listening to this and decides to change the pricing plan. But because they're targeted at consumer-facing applications that have large numbers of users, for a company like us that have a small number of users but a high-value yeah. user, um, it works out really cheaply. Yeah. So you know we would pay, don't mind, like a couple hundred quid a month. Yeah. Um, that runs our support, um, and our our client value will obviously be a lot bigger than that. Um, so we get if you are out there and you're an enterprise user and you're not using Intercom. You should give it a try. And also the same was if you internally use Slack as well. Oh, 100%. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. what I was checking using now, we now use Slack a bit more now for internal emails. Because there's times we're getting email left to troll back through emails and with Slack, it's easier to find mm-hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's great. Yeah, so that's the like this referral that we're given here for Slack yeah. and Intercom. That's where we want to get in our enterprise world. We want to be people talking about Fundrex like they talk about Intercom and Slack. Well, I think basically the product you're offering and the service you're offering sounds like people will look at that because if you can contact them in four minutes, contact the client back that to me says that you do you like what you're doing you know what you're doing and the customer is is the main focus for you guys and if they see that they're going to want to think these guys four minutes later we got a response back and it wasn't automated it was actually a person that I was talking to at the end of the the, uh, line or whatever you're using 
that's something that's great. Yeah. They want to deal with it, help us. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the biggest challenges in the fund industry is everything you know needs to be done today. It's yeah. not a case that, if particularly if you're on daily funds, uh, you know, daily valued funds, means you can't leave the office until your work is done. If the reconciliation isn't working, it needs to work and it needs to work today. So they can't wait two weeks for a vendor to come back and say, yes or no, I can do something. They, they need to know today. Yeah. What about Brexit? How does that affect what you guys are doing? No idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, been looking the sentiment coming back and forth and trying to figure out the probability of it happening, but it's hard to know. Really, it really is hard to know how it would impact us. I don't think they know how it's going to impact. Yeah. I mean, I think the. I don't know. I, I think I think the whole thing is up in the air. I wish I had a, a crystal ball, but something's going to happen. That's all we know. Yeah, well, there will be a two-year transition period if it does go ahead. So we're hope, hopefully it's a slow change if it does. Yeah. So right, Dick and Morgan yesterday were saying they're looking at moving to Ireland, all this stuff and that it just goes ahead. Yeah, it's hard place. It's hard to uproot from Canary Wharf. I mean, you have such a cluster of companies and a cluster of people there. Yeah. You can't just, that, that's probably not as mobile as some other industries would be. Um, but in saying that, Credit Suisse did move the 100-person trading team, trading floor to Dublin recently. Yeah. Um, it's something that the financial services industry here has been kind of hoping that would happen at some stage, would be that that. London's front office business would start moving to Dublin yeah. which has been predominantly back in middle office today and they are higher value jobs and you know potentially they're going to need reconciliation as well so it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing for us but I suppose it's more macro stuff that you'd be worried about that's going to have an effect on the Irish economy in general yeah. I just hope it's, if we do, whatever way it happens that there's no panic in the markets or anything else because if it does come off and people don't, don't panic and if it does come off people don't panic either they just keep the status quo yeah, the, the worst case scenario for us is that panic grips people and that they stop buying stuff. Yeah. And that's that's what happened in the financial crisis. People just stop buying stuff. So if you're six months into a, an 18-month contract negotiation and they decide to put everything on pause, it's probably not a good thing for your company. Especially with you guys. If you spend so much time getting a contract, you're midway through the contract for negotiations, and suddenly they realise, hold on, with Brexit, we're not sure what we're doing. Yeah, yet. yeah, that, that's what kills. That's what kills startups in the enterprise space is that the contract takes so long to sign that yeah. they die before the revenue comes in. And when companies, multinationals, sometimes ask me, you know, what could we do better to s- support startups? It's quite easy, you know, generate an invoice. I mean, sign up for services and pay for them. Yeah. What I find um, slightly frustrating is. These are companies with large R&D budgets. Allocate a certain percentage to work with startups. I mean, yeah. you, you want to work with them, uh, close it off there, and, and, and put the money put the money where the mouth is. The worst thing is these guys might, might say I have to go through America, head office, but mm. okay. I've had that in my last job previously years ago, where anything we were doing, head office in America had to had to okay before they, they would be one of our clients. In my view, that was kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah, big time. Like a lot of our target clients, Ireland would be a cost center. Yeah. And the revenue centers would be elsewhere. So sign off would have to come down the track. But the businesses and the businesses we deal with are really now waking up to the fact that they have to reduce their cost base. So they have to replace manual processes with automation. They have to free their people up to do higher value stuff. Cloud is, is obviously a quick way of doing it. Cloud software is an even better way of doing it. And if you can find someone like us that knows the industry and can bring you along in that process. Like, I suppose when people asked me to you know, reflect on what we've achieved so far. My, my um, favourite achievement is getting financial service companies into the cloud. I think, I think that's been a great achievement, getting them to use AWS. And hopefully we're at the start of that wave and we can benefit with them to track. And uh, when it comes to basically, you guys have, have done a lot in, in, in the past two or three years. What advice would you give to other startups who are actually looking to start up? What would you say 
Mistakes not to make. Mistakes not to make, and and you know every bit of startup advice is, is general. It's not specific to the person listening because you need to know their whole story. But one of the things that we benefited from was having a technical co-founder. If you're building a software product, yeah. try try to find someone technical that can build it. We were lucky that um, we had Porik, for example, our CTO. Um, we wouldn't be where we are now without him. We definitely wouldn't be where we are without him if we had paid developers to do it on a contract basis because yeah. so much has changed and evolved since we first looked at it. You, you would be paying an arm and a leg and then you'd have to scrap everything and start again. So find a technical co-founder if you're not technical be willing to give them half the company in equity they're worth that much um, that'd be my main piece of advice because I think if you can get that right you're yeah. a long way away the other thing I'd add to that I definitely agree with that sentiment the other thing I would say is the idea that you have you really need to really really think long and hard about the viability of, of, of it and if you think well nobody's ever done this you need to think again and, and look and see well if that is the case that no one's ever done this before maybe there's a very good reason as to why so I suppose I would say you need to come up with something that people absolutely need to have yeah. not something that they might like to have because those are two very very different animals when it comes to paying for it I guess you're trying to basically think what pain can I solve and if it's a pain that people actually want solved go with it yeah yeah Yeah. typically if companies can avoid paying for something they will yeah like I've seen people before say they're with the Uber or Facebook or this and that and I just well give me one minute I'll be a pitch what actually are you guys if you can't paint to me in layman's terms what you are then you shouldn't be business yep that, 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 that makes makes sense to me yeah and you can in, in the startup community in general you can be very very busy doing stuff without really doing anything yeah so I mean there's a, you can be at a, two or three events every night of the week and we run one ourselves the, um, we are talking to you before the Findig event which is um a meetup group for, for people in the funds industry and, and discussing tech and getting in speakers and stuff. But the, the danger is then that you spend all your time talking about doing something and not actually doing it. Like yeah. the value that you create is in the grind and the hard work and the stuff that people don't see in the background. And really, what I say, it's probably about 29 days of grind and hard work and feeling miserable and then one, up, one good day. Yeah. And that's pretty much the cycle. Um, but if you're if you're missing out the grind days, like you're you're at nothing really. Yeah, and the thing about it is, <clears throat> you know, media has a, a role to play in this as well. Where you see so many success stories, and people go, "Wow, a startup that you know you must make loads of money so so quickly." That that's very very rarely the case. I mean, some of the great success stories have had multiple multiple failures before they actually were a success. Yeah, take Slack for example. I mean, yeah. that's a great <laughs> example. Um, Stuart Butterfield started a games company that failed and turned into Flickr. Mm-hmm. which proved to be a success and he sold it to Yahoo then he started back on the game again game never ending uh, spent another few years toiling away at that uh, had hired up to maybe the first 50 people in the team that was complete failure had to let go 42 of them kept the 8 core team and what they ended up doing was uh, pivoting into the internal system they built to communicate as a team which mm-hmm. turns out to be Slack which is now the fastest growing enterprise product ever it's been valued in the billions of dollars um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, that wasn't an overnight success to some people that might think it was. It's, you know, 10 years in the making. Like, you look at Indicom, everyone thinks, wow, they're growing, but they took them years to get over there at yeah. this stage. Like they the, had the money. The guys were doing, uh, you know, consultancy first and had another product before they had Indicom. Yeah. You know, you have to learn, you have to do the graph, you have to make mistakes. And then, you know, when an opportunity does come up, come up you've got to, you've got, you're in the position to take it. No, so you've got to make sure that if you get a gig of money, make sure the money is going to be right for you at the right time. Mm. Don't, take any, don't take money for sake of it yeah 
Yeah. Yeah, and ju- just <clears throat> just on the failure side of it, I mean, you, the one message I would give to anyone that has a, a startup is get used to failing, get used to rejection, because if, if you can't take rejection, startup is not the place for you. Yeah, because I know that in America, most companies people fail three times in business. Yeah. It, it's a rite of passage to do that. Yeah. Whereas in Ireland, times if you, if you fail once, people are begrudges here. Don't we think, oh, you failed? We don't want to look at you or deal with you because of that. But my view is, surely, if you're failing after mistake, whereas if you haven't failed at all and you're in a business, and suddenly you got a big problem going on, if you haven't dealt with failure before. How do you cope? Yeah, no big time. Um, and people, people can get caught in that and what they end up doing is not trying to the point of failure yeah. they just kind of go somewhere cosy and attend a few events and say they're working on something but the back of their mind they're holding back a little bit um, you just got to let go of that and, and push through it my view is if you got any time you could do something just put your heart and soul into the project and if you're getting mistakes along the way that's good because I want to have them earlier than later on in the stage so if they're earlier on and they're happening later on clients won't see it mm. it's behind the scenes stuff whereas if it happens later on when you've got clients involved you're going to hit more problems and I guess we see clients don't, clients don't want to see a company that looks like this array. Whereas if it's behind the scenes, it's there and you can fix it within two, three minutes, that's fine. Yeah. I guess that's what Slack's for. Tell the guys, look, there's no problem here one of our clients. Can you fix it? What's the timeline? And you can deal with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, guys. Alan and uh, thanks for that. Alan, yes, thanks so much for that. Perfect.